Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Come join the fun, we're talking about our lives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. I have a fantastic guest today. She is a media giant. She was the first female president of both PBS and CNN Productions. She's been a leader in the media field for decades and also a champion for women for decades. And Pat Mitchell has recently written a memoir entitled Becoming a Dangerous Woman, in which she opens up about her unexpected career trajectory and the importance of taking risks both in work and in life. Pat, welcome. Thank you very much, Shannon. It's a delight to be with you. I'm glad to have you here. And I love the title of this book, and I love the idea behind the book. You you describe a, a dangerous woman as someone who's willing to upset the apple cart and challenge the status quo. Um, and one of the main themes throughout is we're living in dangerous times. And dangerous times call for dangerous women. So what separates a dangerous woman from an everyday woman? Well, I like to think everyday woman has the potential for being dangerous. Yes. <laughs> uh, as well as, as all of the men that we need to stand there with us. Um, I, I think what might separate us even sometimes from our better selves is whether or not we are willing to take the big risk which we know are necessary in order to move anything forward. And certainly they're necessary in order to challenge the status quo or in order to change things significantly. And you're so right in referencing that the uh, it, the motivation for my declaration of dangerousness was <laughs> that I heard someone say, um, we are living in dangerous times. And as I had begun to reflect on my life and career, I realized how many of the challenges and barriers that I had faced in my own life were still existing for the young women of today, and that so many of the rights and the freedoms that I spent a great deal of my adult life fighting for were, in fact, experiencing rollback. So it, it looked as if these dangerous times weren't going to change. They were only getting worse if we didn't start to take bigger risks to change direction. Absolutely. So a dangerous Absolutely. woman for me is someone willing, willing to do that, willing to step up, speak out, and show up. Well, and that's, uh, you, you give, your, your book is kind of part career advice and part memoir, uh, which I think is wonderful because your, your life has been inextricably linked with your career. And so you offer some excellent advice. You were talking about speaking up. One tip you offer is speak early and ask early questions. So how has that advice really kind of helped you in work and in life? One of the stories I share in the book was my first time in the White House press room. And I learned very early that in that press room, if you didn't speak up early and get your voice out there and get your question heard, you were going to disappear and have no importance or meaning, and, you will, and you'd be ignored, which mm -hmm. I was. And, and so finally, you know, a colleague suggested to me, you know, you, you really ought to come prepared to ask a question. Then I jumped up and asked the first one, which was not protocol, as it turned out. <laughs> right. <laughs> But, but that was a lesson, too. Uh, you know, look around the room and make sure you're observing. 
But I also found out throughout being in so many executive rooms and in particular in boardrooms and corporate boardrooms as well, that if you didn't ask your question early or if you didn't put your thoughts forward early in a meeting, uh, you would often get more and more intimidated as the meeting moved forward or you would start to see that your ideas were covered in one way or the other by nearly everyone else or at least they would take credit for it. Right. So it just you know, it it is something I advise young women to do and it's interesting. I'm now seeing young women who've read the book will come to my book event and they'll be the first to throw up their hands when I <laughs> ask the questions and they'll say, I'm following your advice. I'm asking the first question. <laughs> I think that's uh, wonderful. Yeah. And so you I, it took I, you a I, long time to learn to trust your abilities, you said. You said that knowing your own value, your own worth as a person and financially took a you were already a star in the media world by the time that it happened. So do you have any advice for for those women who will be coming to your event, who will be raising their hand, but they struggle with self-doubt? How can they dive deep and kind of find their confidence? One of the questions that always comes up, Shannon, is the one you referenced, that as women we grow up with so many no's in our life. No, you can't do that. No, women don't do that job. Women aren't. Uh, are expected to do this, and, and and there's a lot of other people putting their expectations and limitations on us. So when we do achieve, when we find ourselves in a good job, in a good position, uh, leading, for example, we'll, we'll often suffer from what psychologists have named the imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. feeling that somehow we don't deserve to be there. And that has unfortunately been part of the reason we settled often when we shouldn't have for less money for the Mm -hmm. same job as our male colleagues are making. And while sometimes we're over-eager to prove we can do everything, so in my case I was doing four jobs and getting paid for two, and I find that that's still happening. And young, it is one of the things that this, this new generation of women are less patient about and gratefully stepping up and speaking out more about, but they are still experiencing it. They are still feeling that sometimes they're in a position and wondering, do do I I really qualify? Men very seldom ask themselves that question. When I was an executive in hiring staff, I very seldom had a man say, you know, I'm not sure I meet all the qualifications for this job. (laughs) <laughs> but, I've had, but I've had many women ask me or uh, express that concern. So, you know, I think we have to believe in ourselves earlier. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm losing my voice a bit, as you notice. Yes. Um, that we 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 need to believe early and, and stay with that belief that wherever we are, whatever position we found ourselves in, we, we not only deserve to be there, but we can make a difference by being there. Absolutely. And at, at one point in your career, you ran a company that was by women and for women, and it offered employment options like working from home. What do you feel women need today uh, in today's workplace to kind of level the playing field to get equal pay? Well, equal pay for equal work uh, should be a guaranteed right mm-hmm. for all people. And, and so we should continue to fight for that until it is a part of, of every work environment. But in my opinion, the biggest change we can make, what I call the real changer, 
in the status of, of real equality and in ridding ourselves of many of the injustices that continue based on race, privilege, or gender. Mm-hmm. And that is showing up for one another. It sounds like a very easy thing to do, but it's actually not so easy. When we find ourselves the one or the only person who looks like us or comes from our background or speaks like us, um, it's very easy to get intimidated and to, to listen when people say, oh, don't play the woman card, don't play the race card, you know, step in line, just do your job, don't make, don't make a noise. Well, right. the fact right. is if we were in, using our, our influence, our power, our position, whatever it might be, our privilege, if we use that always, not just for ourselves, but for the people who are coming behind us, mm-hmm. and particularly the communities of color and women who are often not given the same opportunities. So that's going to take that's going to take playing the cards. That's going to take advocating. That's going to take mentoring, sponsoring, showing up for one another is a game changer. Right. And you talk about mentoring, finding a mentor and mentoring others in your book. And, and surprisingly, it's not really a, you know, two people can just decide that they're going to be together and run off. Not everyone clicks, but some people really do. So for people who are looking for a mentor, someone that does look like them in their field, where should they start? Well, you don't start by choosing someone that you want to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, think, I, I think that's the mistake that we make most frequently is we see someone and we think, oh, I want to be her. And and then we want to be mentored by that person. That's not the, that's not the best reason for choosing a mentor. Um, you choose mentors based on what you need to learn, what you uh, need to observe and, and to be, and, and as well as someone who you can offer support and nurture. But I do, in this chapter on mentoring, I do try and give practical advice because I find mentoring only works if both the mentor and the mentee uh, are in agreement about what the boundaries are, what the expectations are, and it's been widely varied in my life. Uh, and, And that's why I wanted to share what I've learned, the lessons I've learned as a mentor, but also as a mentee. I got lucky with a couple of very significant uh, men- mentors, not women, regrettably, other than my grandmother and my eighth grade teacher, English teacher, <laughs> uh, because um, there were no women uh, right. bosses or, or sponsors possible when I was coming along in the business. So I have gone uh, out of my way often to offer my mentoring to other women because I still think the numbers of women available and uh, to do that are limited. I do like the idea now, though, of sponsoring, which takes mentoring one step further, which says, I'm not just going to mentor you. I'm going to be your sponsor, meaning I'm going to be your advocate in every room where you are not present. And that, that again, is, is part of showing up for each other. And when you take a step up the ladder to look behind and say, what can I do for the people who are following me. Sure. And you, I mean, you really struggled with getting your career going at first. It was, uh, as you said, it was, it, was, it was a struggle and you were a single mother. And so do you think that, that that struggle is what kind of just ingrained in you that you wanted to help others 
to, to clear the past? I think that's part of it, Shannon, for sure. Uh, but I think the other part, when people say, well, how did you, how did you keep, how did you balance two jobs and a child and blah, blah, blah. And my answer is really the most honest one I know, which is, well, I didn't have a choice. Right. <laughs> so, I, I, think, I, I think sometimes, you know, challenges and the hardships of one go to the other, uh, they, they do limit our options, for sure. Mm-hmm. But in having our options limited, it does force us to perhaps face our fears, uh, to be more courageous, and certainly uh, to work as hard as necessary. So I don't. I look back on that now. It's probably a good thing that I had those early challenges, because uh, I, I I didn't have an option. If I were going to go to college, I had to get a scholarship. If I was going to leave that small town, I had to find my own way to do it. Um, and as a single parent. Uh, and trying to break into the media business, I had to take a lot of stops and starts and fail a couple of times, uh, but keep coming back. So part of it is balancing fear and courage, and and the other part is just staying uh, determined to keep moving forward. Sure. And, and, and you were the co-founder and founding board member of the Women's Media Center. It's an organization that monitors women in media. So are there any trends you're seeing in media right now that either concern you or delight you? The one that I am delighted about is that in the, the film business in particular are more broadly in the storytelling business, which includes uh, news, podcasts, documentaries, we're seeing more and more women's voices being heard, more and more women's stories being told. And that is not happening just because it's the right thing to happen. It's happening because institutes like the Sundance Institute, which I am grateful to chair, uh, institutes like the Women's Media Center, which you mentioned, which incentivizes media to bring in marginalized voices and stories, there have been strategies in place to be more inclusive. And as a result of these inclusive uh, strategies, the numbers have started to get better at the opening of the pipeline. So you're seeing more women coming into media and technology and storytelling. Mm -hmm. But where I am not delighted and where I am really concerned is that the trend at the top has not gotten better. It has, in fact, gotten worse. We have fewer women in leadership positions. There are still no women, with the exception of Oprah, who own their own media com- major, uh, right. national media companies. And, and that needs to change because we need women in ownership. We need women in every room where decisions are made about our lives, our careers, and our families. And not just women, but all communities who are not represented in those rooms. Right. Because including including all of us, uh, we know now makes for a better outcome, better outcomes for business, better outcomes in media, better outcomes in every aspect of our lives uh, are represented when our voices collectively are represented. Absolutely, and your, your your time at CNN Productions, you were telling stories, and that was you you, you headed up the documentary uh, division. And so, as far as taking what stories you told, I know you say a lot of the success in the business is 
being prepared and diving into a topic to learn as much as you can before you cover it. How did you pick the topics that you covered? Well, when I worked for Ted Turner, of course, uh, he had a lot to do with that. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the good news about, about Ted is that he was such a visionary, and all you had to do uh, to convince Ted to do a, um, a project was just say, Ted, it's an untold story. People don't know the history of women and their accomplishments in this country in the first 100 years. Our people do not know the stories of Native Americans and their history and their heritage. And if you told him it was an untold and important story, like telling the story of the global Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, he would immediately say yes. So during the years I worked for him, I had the privilege to come up with an important idea, a story, and take it to him and have it fully supported. Mm -hmm. Uh, That doesn't happen often in one's career in media and happens less and less today. But I I really did feel like we got to tell an awful lot of important stories. And one of the things that I like to remind myself as well as others, and particularly the young women who come to to read the book or come to talk to me about it, is... We do have to be prepared. We can't just walk in knowing that we've got a good idea, even if it's at a dinner party or a pitch to your boss. Whatever it is, be prepared to explain it briefly and boldly as the idea that you believe it to be. Mm -hmm. Ted, you got three sentences. That was about it. You had to convince him in three sentences that, that this was a program or a story that needed to be told. Right. And you said in the book that this, that his teaching you how to summarize anything in 90 seconds has really served you well throughout your whole life. It definitely has. And it's one of the things that I always try to work with my teams, too, the teams at CNN or wherever I worked, that we needed to be able to explain what we were doing and why it mattered in less than 90 seconds. Because often, a especially today in our impatient and connected world, that's about all the time we get. Right. It's very true. Well, spe- speaking of the, the new world, um, you mentioned your grandmother, and, and she, she always said that, you know, falling down was at, at least moving forward, and I, I love that. And you tell a story about one flub you had early in your career where you used the word schmuck without knowing its oh. true meaning and that people were up in arms. And, and then you say what might happen today if that were to happen. So what are your thoughts on kind of the cancel culture and the mob mentality that we have today? How much more difficult to be able to fail or make mistakes today. And it's just critical to have the ability to do that. I mean, think of where any of us would be if we literally had to step out into our lives and know that we could never say the wrong thing, make the, you know, make any kind of misjudgment or mishap. I mean, in my case, it was a pretty big misjudgment, right. you know, in the, not checking on the meaning of a word before using it, uh, using it. That certainly I would never do again. <laughs> um, I learned that very early on. But, um, but whatever it is, it's so much harder now for young people to be as brave, I think, as they want to be because I think they do fear 
the mob mentality that can kick in immediately in social media and be so destructive. I mean, the, the echo chamber that gets created around mm-hmm. someone's mistake or misquote or sometimes just out and out untruth, and it will still get repeated as if it is truth. So um, I, I'm glad that I didn't have this particular uh, media landscape in which to work when I started in the business. I somehow survived those early career mistakes and learned from them. But I want this generation to be able to make mistakes and learn from them too. And I'm hoping that as the web culture, our social media culture evolves, that there will be more responsibility taken Mm -hmm. or the impact of our words wherever they go, but particularly now when they are there forever. Most definitely. And in, in, a, in a media field where there are so many large corporations and the same information is kind of disseminated down to, to different outlets to the public, to how do you separate yourself from the pack when there's so much centralization in the industry? Ooh, I, I think that's a big challenge. Yeah. But the but the positive side of that that I am seeing is what we referenced earlier is that the pipeline for opportunity has gotten bigger because right. there are so many smaller, more entrepreneurial enterprises going on in media, and you can't quite literally start a podcast in your garage. You can right. also start Google. You can also start Google in your garage, as you know, uh, as those guys did all those years ago. Um, but but there are more opportunities to get your voice out there if you have an idea or you want to tell a story or you want to launch your own podcast or your own radio or whatever. I mean, people can do it, and they are doing it. So in that way, uh, there are more opportunities. The challenge, though, as you say, is because there is no more uh, centralized distribution and the media companies have become completely consolidated around control and ownership, uh, it's harder to have the impact and the influence. And ultimately, what we all want from the information or the stories that we share is we want to know that they reach someone. Mm-hmm. So that that continues to be a challenge, I think, for all of us. But okay. I'm encouraged by how many, how many places there are uh, to tell your story. My frustration is I, I just don't have the time to get through them every day. I have so many fabulous podcasts I want to listen to and blogs I want to read. And, um, so and forget going on Twitter or Instagram. I mean, uh, right? That's that's a lost day. If I yes, that. it sucks you in, doesn't it? You just start and yeah. then you you go down the rabbit hole with that. Right. <laughs> Now you have we're we're running out of time, but I do have one more I, I think important question. You said that your longtime friendships uh, with women like Jane Fonda and Eve Ensler have really helped you keep on the path toward your goals and kind of keep you sane in bad times. And so, what can we do as as women and as men who support women to support women who are trying to forge their way in this world? Show up for them. Speak up for them, advocate for them, vote for them. That is perfect. Just to, Shannon, just to put a, a period on that, it won't happen any other way. Right. You know, we are the largest population in almost every country in the world. Mm-hmm. And if we united 
our collective influence and power, we just cut across the divide that has been put in place to keep us apart. Uh, what we could create, what we could sustain, what we could change together uh, is awesome and, in my opinion, much needed. Amen. Amen to that. And um, I, you are in the middle of a very busy, very ambitious book tour, and one of the stops you're making is the Miami Book Fair later this month, yes? I'm so excited to be coming. And as you may have read, I'm being interviewed on that Sunday night by one of my former mentees. Uh, Catalina Escobar from Bogota, Colombia, is coming into Miami. And I'm so excited for us to model on stage uh, the kind of mentorship that you and I have been talking about because she came to me looking for a way to uh, raise her leadership skills and, and strengthen herself as a leader. And now she's one of Latin America's most prominent and influential leaders of a nonprofit foundation and organization. So um, I'm just delighted that I can be there to talk about my story but that I get to share Catalina's too. Absolutely. It's, it's a, a metaphor for your book right there on the stage. That yes. is amazing. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> well, the book, again, is called Becoming a Dangerous Woman. And, Pat, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us today. Well, thank you, Shannon, and thank you for joining me as a dangerous woman. <laughs> and for Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, this is Shannon Fisher. I'll see you next time. 